0: So people in positions of influence often give speeches. Now, what's interesting is that maybe people don't remember the entire speech, but there's a certain quote or a certain statement that stands out because of its significance. Let me give you a few examples. I will give you the quote, see if you can come up with the person who said it. First one, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Ooh, that's a juicy one. That's a good one. Any idea who might have said that? Considered by many to be the greatest orator in British history, not because he was so naturally gifted, by the way, but just because he worked so hard at it. Prime Minister Winston Churchill said that. Coming on this side of the Atlantic, which is a hint, uh, nearly all men can stand adversity. But if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Okay, success power reveal much?" Spoken by the man who many claim to be the greatest president in American history, Abraham Lincoln. And this next one is interesting. It's not from a politician, but an author. Yet another hint, 20 years from now, you will be more disappointed by the things that you didn't do than by the, the ones you did do. It's kind of an interesting thought by a famous American author by the name of Mark Twain. Now, everything that Jesus said is important. Every word. There's not one word that he said that's unimportant. But it's interesting that certain statements that he made have become particularly treasured and well-known over time. I want to look at one of those this morning, and it's found in the second half of John 10.10. And this has become a personal favorite for me as well where Jesus has this short but incredibly powerful statement, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is what could be classified as Jesus' personal mission statement, his purpose statement. I came that they may have life, and not only a little bit of life, life abundantly. Other translations may say life to the full, life completely. This is overflowing life. An incredibly profound statement, one with so much importance embedded in just a few words. And this is the statement that I want us to think about this morning. Jesus' statement that I came that they may have life. This is really interesting to me because think about the fact that as he's talking uh, to people about this, he's talking to people who are alive. They have life. No matter how you slice it or dice it, these people were breathing, eating, working, talking, interacting, they had life. More than that, he's talking to his people, people of Israel, Jewish people, God's chosen nation. And if ever there was any group in the ancient world that thought they had a track on life, it was the Jews. We are Abraham's children. We have Torah. We know this path to life. And yet Jesus stands among them as they're scurrying about here and there in their attempts for life. And he points them to something that they don't have. He points them to something deeper. I came that you might have life, and life to the full, and life abundantly. Mind you, they were pursuing some version of life, but Jesus says, you haven't arrived yet. Fascinating. And this is a message that applies just as much to 21st century America as it did 1st century Israel, because we are bombarded with messages that seemingly point us in the direction of some kind of life. If you have This product, that's what you need to be happy. Or just the word more. You need, you have some money, well, that's good. What you need is more money, then you'll be even happier. You need more sex. And it doesn't matter if it's with somebody who you're not married to, just you need more. You need a house in the right zip code, and then you will have life and the messages are relentless. TV shows and movies are constantly depicting these uh, images of a happy, satisfied life by pursuing more products and experiences. Advertisements and commercials depict these usually very attractive, seemingly happy, highly Photoshopped people who are displaying this image of, oh, I am so happy and satisfied because I purchased this product. And you'll have the same experience if you do as well. And the reality is, each one of us here, each one of us is pursuing a version of life. The question is, where do we stand in relation to the abundant life, the full life that Jesus offers? What kind of life are we pursuing? And this is where Jesus' statement is so significant. He's acknowledging that people pursue life and he's not putting it down. Yes, pursue life, but pursue it in the right place, in the right person. And Jesus spoke often of life and he spoke often even of eternal life. And when Jesus spoke of eternal life, he wasn't simply speaking of the duration. When Jesus speaks of eternal life, he's not just talking about a life that lasts a really, 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 really really long time. Yeah, it includes that. When Jesus talks about life and eternal life, he's speaking of a depth and a quality. He's talking about a life that's rich and deep and a life that satisfies And a life of peace and joy that cannot be found in any other place or any other person. It's this life of blessing with Jesus at the center of everything. Important caveat here. What Jesus is not saying, what Jesus is not implying... This rich, abundant life, oh man, it is easy and it's comfortable all the time. The Bible never once, not once, invites us to an easy and comfortable life. What Jesus invites us to is this life of richness and depth and joy that transcends circumstances. And if we go back to the beginning of the Bible, we see that that was God's intent right from the beginning. And I'd like to take Jesus' statement and go back to creation and see how did God intend for man to live and what hindered that. So if we go back to the very beginning, we see that God created the first couple, Adam and Eve. And he gave Adam and Eve everything that they needed. They had a swanky place to live, feel like camping in a garden. But yeah, a garden, they had all kinds of food to eat, they had a great relationship with God, fabulous relationship between each other. Pretty sweet deal. Genesis 2 verse 9 gives us a little bit of a hint of what the garden looked like. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life, also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So in the garden, we see lots of trees, and they were good for food. Okay, there were probably plants and shrubs growing vegetables as well. Vegetarians delight. All kinds of thing, things for them to eat. Not necessarily a wonderful place for a happy carnivore like me. No tri-tip, no pulled pork sandwich, but they had plenty to eat, and it was good. Lots of trees, and God gives them abundance. But then there are two trees specifically mentioned by name. One is the tree of life, right in the middle. And apparently, by eating of this tree, Adam and Eve would renew life. But it's not just the the fruit of the tree, that it was somehow better than than the others. It represents this life of communion with God, with God at the center. But then there's another tree, called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is the one and only tree that Adam and Eve were told not to eat from. Notice Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. The Lord commanded the man saying from any tree of the garden you may eat freely but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. It's pretty good motivation to avoid that fruit, right? You eat from it, you die. Now, it's not like the tree on that or the fruit on that tree rather was somehow bad. It's not like something got messed up in the creation process, where God got distracted for a millisecond when He was creating stuff, and something went genetically wrong in that tree, and, and the fruit became poisonous. It's not what happened at all. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He told them to not eat of it, be simply as an aspect of freedom. In order for man, for Adam and Eve, to be free. But to freely enter into a loving relationship with God, they had to be free to choose something other, too. I suppose God could have drawn a line in the dirt and said, well, don't, you can go anywhere in the garden, just don't cross that line. He could have built a fence and said, you can do whatever you want, just don't hop over the fence. But he planted a tree there and he said, don't eat the fruit. And it's a test. Were Adam and Eve going to let God be God by letting him determine what's good and bad, right and wrong? Or were they going to take that upon themselves? No, I don't care what you say. I will do what I want, and I want that fruit. Were they going to submit to God or not? And it's a necessary part of love and freedom. But God's intent was for them to choose the tree of life. But then in Genesis 3, we see their choice played out. Let's quickly take a look at this. And it starts in verse 1, where Satan, our enemy, appears, and he talks to a serpent. Verse 1 of chapter 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? So, Satan's first verbal volley is a question, and it's a question designed to cause doubt in the mind of Eve. Did God really say that? If so, doesn't that imply that he's really not being very good? That he's kind of mean and capricious? And we see Eve's response in verses two and three. The woman said to the serpent, Well, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the, free, the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. How does Eve do? Pretty good job. Except she adds one clause in there. She gets it right. God told us not to eat that fruit. We die, but... he. Oh, yeah, he also said we can't touch it, which God didn't say. But it seems like Satan's question is starting to work. Oh, yeah, well, God did say we can't eat of that fruit, and actually, I can't even touch it either. That really bugs me. It annoys me. And then Satan goes in for the kill in verses 4 and 5. The serpent said to the woman, Surely you will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. But notice the tactic. He's going to point out how how good something looks. Look Look at the fruit on this tree. Doesn't that look good? Imagine how good it tastes. And there's no ramifications. Well, God said this, but yeah, you don't have to believe him. It's not true. And he does something similar with us. probably not with fruit. Go ahead, take this drug. Take this sip of alcohol. It's no big deal. It's going to make you feel better right now and life becomes more pleasant. Or, you're not satisfied in your current marriage. Yeah, well, go find somebody else. That person will satisfy you. You're pregnant and you don't want to be? Just go get an abortion. Takes care of the problem. No one needs to know. Here's the point. If you take nothing else from this morning, hear this. While Satan highlights the seeming pleasure of sin, he hides the pain and the destruction that results from that choice. There's no full disclosure with Satan. He's not going to reveal what happens when you choose to engage something other than what God says. Satan didn't tell Adam and Eve about the separation that they were going to experience in their relationship with him, between each other, and even within themselves. He hid that. He doesn't give full disclosure with the physical, emotional, relational pain that comes with a life of addiction. He doesn't reveal the relational ruin that happens because somebody chooses immorality with another person. Satan does not show the woundedness that a woman's going to carry by choosing to have an abortion. He does not reveal the emptiness that results from a life of wealth when God is not at the center of that. Satan will highlight the pleasure, seeming pleasure, of those choices but he does not reveal the fact that all we do is become more and more enslaved to sin. Now take Adam and Eve's choice and roll it forward again into John 10, where Jesus was speaking. John 10, now verses 7 through 10. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Again, Jesus is the one who offers or invites us to life. But he makes it clear that there are people, there are those who prevent others from entering into or finding fullness. And he calls them thieves and robbers. Interestingly, in his day, it was probably largely the Jewish religious leaders that he was referring to in that way. People who should have been leading people to the Messiah, the fullness, and yet they didn't do that. They hindered that. And in our culture, too, there are voices all the time. You want life? Look this way. Go here. More. You need more. If you have more fortune, if you have more fame, that's where it's at. But I think the recent examples, sad examples, of Kate Spade, is that right, Kate Spade? And Anthony Bourdain would argue to the contrary. Kate Spade, the designer of accessories. Anthony Bourdain, the uh, celebrity TV chef. People who had fame and fortune and abundance and yet took their own lives. Talk to any number of people who've chosen another sexual partner outside of marriage and you'll hear stories of ruin and not happiness. Drugs and alcohol seemingly provide a nice quick escape from the pain of life, but all they do is enslave thieves and robbers. And there are plenty of people who think that the Bible is out to restrict life in joy. I don't know, why would I do that? It's just rules and regulations, and I want to have fun. An individual, an ancient individual, who struggled with this uh, is a guy named uh, named Augustine. You may know him as a theologian, a 4th, 5th century church father. But if Augustine was alive in the 1960s, he would have been at Woodstock as a wild child, partying, womanizing, because that's what he did, well, without Woodstock, uh, back in the 4th century. And his mom prayed for him, and he finally came to Christ But in his Confessions, Augustine describes the struggle to leave behind his sinful life. And Augustine says this, I longed for the happy life, but was afraid of the place where it has its seat, and fled from it at the same time as I was seeking for it. I thought I would become miserable if I were deprived of the embraces of a woman. I did not think the medicine of your mercy could heal that infirmity because I had not tried it. Fascinating. See, he wanted the happy life, but he struggled to believe that the way of Jesus was better than the way of sexual immorality. Thankfully, he did come to find out, and he did give his life to the one who gives life. But the reality is Jesus offers a richer, deeper, far more satisfying life than anything else. And he can do that because he is the one who is life. And when he gives life, it's not the basic bare necessities, bread and water kind of life. It is deep and satisfying. And Jesus makes it clear there's only one way, one way, of receiving this kind of life. And he talks about it in verse nine of John 10, where he says, "I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. and will go in and out and find pasture." See, Jesus is standing there, and he's talking about life, but he's not pointing to another door. If you go to door 18 of the temple, well, there you'll find life. Jesus is pointing to himself as the door. If you want life, ladies and gentlemen, he's saying to his people, you come through me. That's where it's at. It's in Jesus, and Jesus alone but in order for us to know this full, abundant life that Jesus wants for us on an ever-increasing basis, it means that there has to be a Jesus-first component to all of life. See, what I, what I think is it's easy for us to segment life. Okay, Sunday morning I go to church, and man, I'm part of a small group, so I've done my church thing for the week, and the rest of the time is mine. And maybe we hardly even give God much of a thought the rest of the week. This way of abundance is only found when Jesus is first in all that we do. When we think Jesus. So even when we go to work, that is a time of worship in a way similar to being here on a Sunday morning, except we're not all together. When we're hanging out with family and friends, that too is Jesus' first time. So let's quickly land the plane here. I want to give you a couple questions to think about, either today or at least during this week. In light of this invitation that Jesus has to a full, abundant life, question one What people, positions, or possessions are you primarily seeking in your pursuit of life? We're all seeking some version of life, a good life, a happy life. Where are we seeking it? In what places or what people? And to how central is Jesus in all your activities and thoughts? And how are we making him first in all we do? The invitation to a rich, abundant life is to us as well. Is he? Are we seeking that kind of life? Are we seeking him, pursuing him first above anything else? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you invite us to life, and you've done everything possible at incredibly great cost to make life a possibility. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for life. Thank you for the guys that stand here behind me Lead them each and every day in those paths that lead to life. In Jesus' name, amen. Free of life first appears in the very beginning of the creation story. And then we see it again in the depiction of heaven. Notice how Revelation 22 describes part of heavenly life. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will be no longer any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, And his name will be on their foreheads. God's intention was always life. And in eternity, it's the fullness. It's the completion. But we get to enter into that here and now. That's his invitation to us.